This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Every year, one out of three teenagers will experiment with alcohol or drugs, and up to 15 to 20 percent will develop a substance use disorder at some point during their lifetime. Sadly, only 10 percent of those needing help will receive the necessary treatment. With us to discuss these sobering statistics is Dr. Tyler Osterley, a psychiatrist in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Welcome, Tyler. Thank you. Good to be here. Well, let's talk about substance abuse and our teens. And uh, I think that the, the three main issues, nicotine, alcohol, THC, do they develop dependence to these things all at the same time? Or is there kind of a progression? So it's often a progression for many of the adolescents that um, uh, start to experiment with these substances. Uh, a lot of times they'll start with things like nicotine, which is the most accessible of those substances, um, and then they'll experiment more with alcohol. Um, sometimes it's reversed uh, for those two substances. A lot of times more recently we're seeing uh, folks, these adolescents start with cannabis mm -hmm. as it's become more and more accessible. Um, these are all uh, substances that are really commonly used uh, in teenagers and um, are all associated with leading to other substances of abuse. So when a teen is addicted to one of these substances, is it more often that they got at least two or maybe even three at the same time? Right. So a lot of adolescents are experimenting with these substances, and so it can be a little difficult to tell sometimes clinically um, where experimentation begins and, and, mm -hmm. and ends. Um, we know that as they start using these substances more regularly, they, they uh, can and, and often do develop a dependency on these substances and then a, a driving need to continue these substances, which uh, leads to addiction. Yeah. What's been the trend over time? So the trends in adolescent substance use are often associated with the adolescent's perception of risk associated with uh, substances of abuse. So, uh, for example, um, uh, there was a time 20 years ago where marijuana was considered pretty risky for an adolescent to use, and we saw the uh, use of marijuana to be pretty low in the adolescent population. As the perception of risk declined um, in adolescents, we saw the use of marijuana increase. So, yeah, adolescent substance use is often associated with perception of risk. Mm -hmm. Well, how does addiction in adolescents differ from addiction in adults? There's a lot of uh, ways in which adolescent addiction is different. Uh, one of the most um, pronounced uh, areas where adolescent addiction is different than adults is with uh, consequences of use. Uh, for example, adolescents uh, will often use substances they'll use late at night, they'll um, come home late, and parents will give them a consequence in the home. The adolescents don't see that as very severe. They're always getting consequences for this and that. Um, they're typically not getting in legal trouble, or they're not um, causing issues with a significant other or with their friends, because often their significant other and friends are using as well. Mm -hmm. So we're not seeing the same sort of consequences in adolescents because they have that protection from parents, and they're typically given more of a pass. 
adolescent substance uses in, in when they begin using they're often using in heavy amounts for a short period of time where adults use a bit more chronically when they have dependency so they're using more regularly on mm -hmm. a daily basis adolescents also are less likely to describe what we call cravings which is this this need to use now what we find when we look at adolescents who are heavy users they often do have cravings um, they're just not identifying that they they do have cravings so they're out with friends, they feel like things are boring, they feel like they need to use marijuana, for instance. Um, it's part of that sensation that things are boring, things aren't fun, um, gosh, you know, I gotta use, that we help them understand that that's, that's part of that craving phenomenon. It's your brain telling you in this situation you typically use and so you need to go get that substance that you use. Mm -hmm. They're less likely to report cravings, they're um, less likely to have consequences, um, they're more often actually to have family conflict associated with uh, substances of abuse. So, um, for instance, parents who are aware that they're using substances, there's usually a lot of conflict in the home. Our teenagers seem to always be susceptible to peer pressure. Does that play a big part in this? Yes. Yeah, so if an individual's um, friends are using, they're much more likely to use, and that's common sense. Um, it does help us identify, though, treatment strategies for adolescents uh, because usually it requires a community approach and an environmental approach uh, that's very different than adults. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, They're going to go back to the same school, typically, uh, the school where they'd, they'd uh, had all their friends that were using. And their social uh, network is very important to them at that age. It's difficult to convince a 15-year-old to uh, not hang out with their friends. Uh, mm -hmm. And even though they identify that their friends aren't, aren't very healthy, um, that's really their, their world at that age. And so it becomes more challenging when you start thinking about treatment options. Yeah, and I imagine that the teens would tend to use these substances more with others than when they're all by themselves. Exactly. So they're much more common than it's much more common than uh, adults for these teens to utilize uh, mm -hmm. with others rather than adults. Do substance abuse disorders coexist with mental health disorders? Uh, very common, and much more common even in adolescents than adults for them to have what we call comorbid uh, mental health illnesses like depression, anxiety, uh, even bipolar disorder and schizophrenia at times. If you can get an adolescent into treatment, is it effective? Does it work? It does work. Um, a lot of good studies have shown that uh, if you can get an adolescent into treatment, uh, they do benefit from that treatment. They're much more likely to stay sober. They're much more likely to complete high school, go on to college, and uh, receive uh, a good job or a good paying job. Mm -hmm. And does a teen need to be addicted to a drug in order to benefit from uh, drug abuse intervention? No. We have, a, for example, here what we call an early intervention program where we identify an adolescent that is getting into trouble with substance use. It's um, early. They may have used just a few times. Um, but really their perception of risk around that substance use is uh, skewed um, because of things they've heard uh, at school or, or in the media. And so we bring them in and we uh, work with them uh, through what we call motivational interviewing to help them identify that yeah, it's already causing a problem and uh, here's some uh, other problems that it could cause in the future if it continues at this rate. Mm -hmm. As I was reading about this topic, I came across a large number of treatment options. 
Can you summarize some of the treatment uh, options that you have for these uh, teens? The most common treatment levels of care um, would be outpatient, and then um, we have intensive outpatient, then we have a residential level of care. So the interventions that we utilize uh, in each one of those levels of care are uh, in concept often the same. Um, it's just that they get, they get more of that and more structure depending on which level. So some treatment examples would include cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been well-researched and shown to be very effective to treat adolescents with substance use disorders. Uh, we also know that motivational interviewing or motivational enhancement therapy, I described an example of that mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we were talking about our early interventions program, but this type of therapy is very effective for adolescents. A particular type of therapy that's very interesting in adolescents and kind of is uh, meeting them where they're at developmentally is what we call contingency management therapy. So contingency management is where you incentivize them to do uh, pro-sober behaviors, mm -hmm. so behaviors that are associated with uh, good sober outcomes. Um, so that would be like attending uh, peer support groups, going to therapy, uh, taking their medications. And so if they are doing these things, they can get a voucher that then they can utilize to um, receive rewards for doing those things. That type of therapy has also been shown to be effective in, in adults as well, but for adolescents, they're very concrete, uh, can, can be a bit black and white in their thinking, and it can be difficult to show them that sobriety is, is a good thing for them. Um, you know, it's a tough argument to have. Uh, they have to step away from their friends. They may lose their girlfriend. Um, they may stay home on Friday nights. Uh, they have to attend these meetings. Um, so they're seeing all the negative in their lives. So if you can add a positive, like, well, you can get a ticket to the movies, you know, if you're, you're doing these good things, it's a more immediate reward for them, and it's uh, a little bit uh, more black and white with mm -hmm. clear cut. When would you more likely recommend a more intensive treatment, such as inpatient treatment? So when the use of very, is very heavy, we typically have folks that are, are very good at evaluating these adolescents. We recommend that um, uh, adolescents that are showing some risky behavior be evaluated by a licensed drug counselor. They're very good at identifying what level of care is uh, most appropriate for an adolescent. It's heavy use, uh, use that's consistent with adult use, um, so daily use, lots of consequences, lots of very obvious consequences, an individual meeting those 11 out of 11 criteria for a substance use disorder. Those are the individuals that typically benefit from the higher level of care. Individuals that fall a bit below that but still have problematic use often benefit from the outpatient mm -hmm. um, uh, groups. What brings a teen to treatment? Is this always their idea, or are they encouraged, are they forced to come? So that's another thing that uh, we talked about what's uh, more likely to occur in adolescent substance use than adult substance use. Adolescents are actually more likely than adults to enter treatment through the criminal justice system, so juvenile detention, mainly because that's their first consequence uh, that's been identified because parents have created a barrier and a bit of a protection for them. Do you see a difference in motivation when a teen comes in of their own will versus one who's sent here through the legal system? Yes, there certainly is a, a difference in motivation, and that's true for adults, too, mm -hmm. if they come into treatment through uh, the criminal justice system. With adolescents in particular, though, generally the uh, norm is low motivation for sobriety. They, they haven't identified as many consequences as an adult uh, cohort. 
And so uh, the expectation is in treatment that you're starting with motivation. That's that's the beginning. Um, and then you're moving forward from there. Mm-hmm. So. Is there any pharmacologic treatment that you use that's helpful? There are some. Often the medications that we use are designed to address the comorbid psychiatric symptoms, so like depression, anxiety, sleep challenges, those things that may be getting in the way of them staying sober. A lot of adolescents, uh, just like adults, use substances as a coping strategy Mm -hmm. uh, to address uh, their comorbid anxiety or uh, depression. But there are medications that have been shown to be a bit more effective in adolescents, interestingly enough, uh, than adults. Um, N-acetylcysteine is one of those for marijuana addiction. And there was a a large uh, positive study for adolescents that showed that N-acetylcysteine decreased using days and uh, decreased uh, cravings associated with uh, marijuana addiction in adolescents. The same study with the same dose didn't uh, have as much benefit in adults, you know, looking at that group, but certainly more study to do there. But that's uh, one change. We often use typically um, medications that we know work in adults uh, for adolescents, and there's been some smaller studies that have shown uh, that they can be helpful. The one exception would be anti-craving medications for nicotine. Nicotine replacement seems to be a, a bit less effective in adolescents mm-hmm. than it is in adults. Um, we think that's largely a, a motivation issue again. Um, as we talked about, more adolescents are um, struggling with motivation than sure. adults. So. Is adherence to pharmacologic treatment a problem? Is there compliance issues with that? There is. Adolescents are particularly vulnerable to poor compliance. Um, Many of our patients are, but uh, adolescents are particularly susceptible to that. A lot of our adolescent patients, they're in pretty chaotic home environments, um, so they're uh, not getting as much structure and as much support uh, from a family to take their meds every day. So That's probably very, very difficult, if not impossible, to, uh, to treat. It does make treatment more challenging. Sure. Sure. What's the typical duration of treatment for substance abuse in teens? So traditionally, we look at a 30-day residential uh, treatment model with a a several-month outpatient treatment model. Uh, We know that the longer an individual is connected to treatment, the more um, successful they are in maintaining uh, sobriety or recovery. Um, So we try to extend out a treatment as long as possible by kind of dropping down levels of care. So we would start maybe with residential level of care and then go to the uh, like an intensive outpatient level of care for a few months and then transition to maybe just uh, weekly appointments with a licensed drug counselor. So we try to step them down mm-hmm. so they're, they're staying connected to the uh, to treatment but still getting a long kind of prolonged treatment. Sure. Do you have any data on long-term effectiveness of treatment? Well, we do know just generally um, that long-term treatment is a bit more effective than short-term treatment. Long-term treatment, especially that higher level of treatment, is just very costly. There's been kind of a a balance struck, and that balance has been this 30 days. So Mm -hmm. traditionally, we're usually able to get 30 days covered, and and, uh, sometimes we're able to get longer periods of time covered for an adolescent that has a lot of other things going on. uh, that uh, everybody agrees need needs uh, longer care. Mm-hmm. Now, these teens will occasionally come in to see us, a primary health care provider, for a variety of things, maybe a, a sports physical or a minor illness. What's the primary health care provider's role in identifying these kids? It's the classic sort of expert model that's screening, brief intervention, and then the referral for treatment. 
So not expecting to kind of get it all covered there in that visit, but if you're asking about it, you're much more likely to find it. And then doing just a brief intervention there with the adolescent, hopefully the parent, if they're willing to have that conversation with the parent as well, and then having a treatment provider to refer them to. An easy number there in the office that you can hand the family, so it's uh, there's a, a low difficulty for them to reach out to that uh, licensed drug counselor. And then really what they need is that full assessment to really kind of parse out what level of care would be most appropriate for them. Once you've identified a teen with an addiction problem, is a sexually transmitted infection something that also should cross their mind? Yeah, it's one of many things that we look for um, and, and should be screened for if you identify that they're regular substance users. There's just teens are already involved in risky behaviors, uh, throw a substance of abuse on top of that, and their likelihood to be involved in, in, in these uh, uh, risky sexual behaviors uh, increases significantly. So yes, exactly. So we know that only a minority of those who really need help are getting help. What's happening to these kids once they grow up if they don't get treatment? Are they turning into addicted adults? They are. Um, so these are the adults we end up uh, finally seeing and getting treatment. Uh, they're often adults who just have less less success in life. They're less likely to uh, complete high school, less likely to complete college, less likely to uh, enter a uh, productive career compared to their peers. Um, so the earlier we can catch them, the more likely we are to intervene and uh, get them back on track. And if we can do that, if they get back on track, if they're able to maintain sobriety uh, after treatment, their outcomes actually look very much like their peers uh, that hadn't had a uh, substance use issue when they were young. You mentioned a dysfunctional family often going along with addiction. How important is the family, and do you do with did you deal with this in the treatment? Yeah, definitely. So uh, the short answer is family is very important. Family provides that sober environment or hopefully could provide that sober environment. Sometimes parents are using as well, and mm-hmm. that causes a problem. So clearly you need to pull the parents in and, and address their substance use. If the parents actively using, the chance of the teen maintaining sobriety in a home where the parents actively using is very low, um, as you can imagine. We want the whole family involved in supporting sobriety. It needs to be a home that's focused on sobriety. Mm -hmm. Ideally, an abstinence-based home. All substances of abuse are removed from the home. So it creates an environment that's really focused on uh, avoiding relapse. Mm -hmm. So if you had to summarize what we've discussed, what are some of the key points in um, adolescent substance abuse disorders? So I think it's uh, just helping everybody identify that it it is – a lot of the risk factors associated with adolescent uh, substance use are different than adults. The interventions are, are a bit uh, different at times um, based on that. Uh, adolescents are much more likely to hide their addiction or it's much less obvious that they have an addiction. So screening uh, for addiction, even in adolescents that look like they're very healthy, um, maybe very popular, very uh, uh, very good students uh, appear like they're doing well. They may have an underlying addiction that everybody's just not aware of that as it progresses over time could really derail their lives. And so just being having a low threshold for the screening and then um, doing an intervention and getting them the referral that they need. Okay. Well, we've been discussing substance abuse disorders in adolescents with Dr. Tyler Osterley, a psychiatrist in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology and Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Tyler, thank you so much for sharing this important information with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. 
Join us here weekly at Mayo Clinic Talks. You can now access and listen to over 100 different podcasts covering a variety of medical topics pertinent to the primary care provider. You can hear us at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.